What's happening, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Carbide Podcast with Jamie Chaney. Jamie has spent most of his life around the sport of snowcross in some way. Whether it was racing, wrenching, he's kind of been there and seen it all and brings a cool perspective to the sport that we may not always consider from the outside looking in. Here is where I hit you with the bad news. Contrary to popular belief, I am human and I am not immune to technical glitches. For some reason, the audio on my end of this interview came back all out of whack and not the best quality. However, Jamie's is crystal clear. If you're able to push through it, there's some really cool stories in here about Jamie's own snowcross career, how Boss Racing got their iconic Jimmy John's deal, and I don't think you'll want to miss any of it. With that said, I hope you enjoy our discussion. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. On the line tonight, six-time IJSBA world champion. He's held numerous roles as a mechanic and crew chief with Avalanche, Boss Racing, Carlson Motorsports, most recently with All Finish Racing. He also has a successful pro snowcross career himself. This is Jamie Cheney. How are we doing, Jamie? Hey, not too bad. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time for us tonight. I think it's going to be really fun diving into your career and, and kind of telling us your story a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it should be great. So, Jamie, you know, we know you in snowcross, jet skis, pretty extensive career, but what was the first power sports toy that you had? What what vehicle really got you hooked on this, this lifestyle that you live? PW50. PW50. Love it, love it. <laughs> was this uh, was this something that kind of the the family prompted? Like, was it a was it a family affair for you guys? Was everybody racing, or where did that one come from? Yeah, family affair. Our whole family was uh, heavily into flat track motorcycle racing, so motorcycles were you know what I grew up knowing. Awesome, awesome. So, did you kind of grow up racing moto, or did you have visions of being a, a flat track guy? Uh, moto, you know, moto was, was what I wanted to do. Moto was what I at someday, you know, wanted to run a, a motocross team, whether it was a factory team or, you know, at a smaller level, that is what I always, uh, see myself doing. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, we'll get into some other stuff, but I am, I am curious, you know, skipping ahead a ton of years. Did you ever get any close opportunity? to do that at all even like a privateer moto team or anything like that no not not yet you know these days i've been (laughs) helping a couple (laughs) yeah i've been helping a couple young kids that are they're super fast around here that have uh, been down to loretta's and you know i've been building their bikes and trying to help them go the right direction you know meet the right people get in the right situations so So that's where I'm at right now with that. When did you, uh, when did you start racing moto yourself, Jamie? I started racing around 10, 10, 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, super competitive kind of locally? Like, were you, were you the, the, the local fast guy? Yeah, well, there's a couple of kids that uh, I'd run with that were uh, around our area that were actually really good. You know, we found ourselves going down to Minnesota and doing a lot more racing there. The tracks were, you know, quite a bit better. Competition was a lot mm-hmm. tougher. Yep. So. Did you ever, uh, did you ever make a, a Loretta's run in your amateur career? No. No, it was cut too short for uh, obviously our family business selling snowmobiles and jet skis. So I had to go a different route. <laughs> gotcha. Fair, fair. As you're kind of growing up in moto, I would assume that, you know, with the family heritage and the dealership, you definitely kind of had a, a mechanical aptitude, even as a, as a young guy, always curious about performance and making things better. Yeah. Yep. We always in-house, everything we built was always uh, built right at our shop. Never had to you know, go too far and find power and whatnot, you know. So, you know, again, sounds like you were kind of chasing a, a moto career in a lot of ways, but did you ever kind of take a peek and, and consider going on the mechanical side of, 
of moto or snow or anything? I mean, you mentioned the, the, the team owner goal, but was it either be a, a racer or a team owner, or was there ever kind of an idea of being a mechanic or a crew chief at that time? Uh, at that time, you know, I was still really young, so racing was all I ever wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I never really thought too much into the mechanical side of it, even though I was always working on my own bikes. My dad was helping me do everything. You know, at, at, at that point, I just, you know, I wanted to race. Racing was all I wanted to do. When did you first get a, an opportunity to to get on a, a snowcross track? I mean, you mentioned the, the family dealership, so you're always around snowmobiles, but when did you first get on a snowcross track? The first time I was on a snowcross track was roughly 1997. You know, obviously we were always watching Tony hiking in and, and the Hibbert, you know, Kirk Hibbert and Brad Pake, guys like that. You know, and then my dad took me over to Spirit Mountain. I think I was running a 440 Fanner and I semi-pro. I did really well. And then the next year I uh, moved up to the, you know, 440 stock and I ended up second at Spirit Mountain led the whole race till the last lap. And I think it was uh, DJ Ekstrom ended up getting by me on the factory Yamaha. And then that's when, mm -hmm. that's when the snowcross stuff really took off. Tom Rager senior was running the skidoo side of it. And he knew me from drag racing. You know, we were, we were pretty heavily into grass drags and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, he uh, got us a little extra money and some more support and ended up going over to Vermont for like the second round of the, MRP race or MRP series. And next thing you know, we're doing it full swing. Did you, uh, did you race any of the, the super fast Vermont guys? Cause I, I'm a, I'm a Vermont guy myself, Jamie. I don't know if you know this. So of course I'm going to give right those guys an opportunity to, to, to shine. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there were some guys that were pretty good from out there. Um, I, I do remember a couple of Quebec riders, um, I think there were some brothers from Vermont that were pretty good. Maybe Road Arctic Cats. Hmm. That sound right? Maybe back then. It could be possible. I'm a I'm a younger guy, so I, I yeah, missed a lot it was of quite, years. And those are <laughs> yeah. It's quite some time ago though, so it's hard to hard to remember. But I tell you what, when we go to you know the New York the race out in New York and Quebec, it was it was always awesome racing them guys. You never got to see them much maybe they'd come over for Duluth at the beginning of the year and then we wouldn't see them until you go out to that um, rock maple side. So mm -hmm. it was fun. Awesome. Awesome. So I was going to ask then, you know, what your amateur career looked like, but it kind of sounds like you didn't have much of an amateur career in snowcross. Just kind of, kind of jumped in on the deep end and just went for it in, in semi-pro. Yeah. Yeah. Never did. Never ran sport. Went right to semi-pro and did pretty well. Mm -hmm. I got second in 99 and semi-pro open a couple seconds. And I think the next season and, you know, semi-pro stock, semi-pro open. I think I had over 10, maybe 10, 10, 11 wins in the semi-pro class at the national level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pretty wow. good. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's just no big deal. It was, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i'm curious then you know as you're kind of seeing some success on the semi-pro side you know snowcross around this time there wasn't a ton of money to be made there's probably more money to be made than there is now but there was people could make a living at least in the winter time there was some good contingency and things like that from the factories were you trying to to kind of turn this into a little bit of a career on the snow side or was it still just kind of a hobby that you were seeing where you could take it I'd say it was still just a hobby, seeing where I could take it. You know, we obviously had a, a pretty large dealership that we were running, so I had to be there quite a bit. But never really thought that this would turn into what it has 20-something years later, you know? <laughs> yep. Oh, man. When did you, uh, you first bump up the pro then? So it was the 2001, 2002 season. Mm -hmm. I jumped up to pro. I had the opportunity to uh, stay in pro light one more year. And uh, I just, you know, with us doing everything the way we do it at our shop, I, I just thought, hey, this is the time to 
run pro. I think I was 23 or 24 years old. I was like, eh, okay. now's, now's the time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing that. And that was the year the rev came out. So the like Blair Morgan racing, Warnet, you know, they all got the revs. I ended up not getting one, but I got a, I mean, Simon Bazil, which, or BZ, I probably pronounced her that wrong, but he was the Canadian pro light rider. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both got the last two factory ZX mods. So I ended up running that that season and had a lot of fun with it. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It, uh, Simon Bell comes up quite a bit. I do a lot of interviews with, with new England guys from the rock maple days and Simon Bell was, was fast. He was, he was a fast dude on his sled. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. So, I mean, you're kind of getting your feet wet in the pro class. And again, this is a really, this is a really competitive couple years in the, in the pro class for, for WSA. What are kind of some, some major career highlights for you in those, in those next couple of years? Does, does anything stand out for you? I mean, I, a couple notes here. I mean, you, like we said, a lot of, a lot of success in semi-pro and then make it to X games and pro and things like that. So what are some, what are some highlights that stand out for you? Well, the pro stuff, it was cut pretty short because I hurt, hurt my leg pretty bad out in Valcourt, Quebec, but leading up to it, I was having some really, really good qualifying. Back in that day, there was actually, you had to qualify just to get into the main qualifiers. There were so many guys mm -hmm. running. So, I mean, that was just a, you know, that was a huge deal just to get into the, you know, the main show. Cause the guys, I think it was like the top 10 in points were, on, were locked in from the previous year. Everybody else had to qualify down to, to get into the show. I had a lot of good runs uh, going up to Valcor. I was I was doing really well, and then I, that particular race, I, I was one of the top qualifiers. Ended up getting a hole shot, leading for a little bit. Blair got by me. I, I was running third, just near the end of the mm -hmm. race, and my foot slipped off the running board, snapped my tip and fib, and yanked on my ligament. So yeah. it was a pretty uh, pretty nasty one there. So I kind of ended uh, that year right there were you uh i mean you're you're basically gonna get taken away in the ambulance but i mean you're in you're in valcor you're 1800 miles away from home did you, did you end up in a in a french-speaking hospital like what was the what was the, what was the story yeah, that was, that? <laughs> this was a tough one so when i when i broke my leg there i was laying on the side of the track and joe duncan ended up, you know, laying on me because uh, there was still a couple laps left to go in the race. And I was kind of in a, a bad spot where they couldn't really see me. Mm -hmm. So anyways, they ended up loading me into the ambulance and the Grand Prix had to go. Sun was going down. So they needed to get that uh, big oval race going. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Noel Kohansky, yep. which rode for players, he hit a ESPN tower and knocked the person down onto the ice. So there was, you know, one of the ambulance had to leave with uh oh with the ESPN person. So I'm, I'm sitting in the other ambulance laying there knowing my legs not doing very well. So they couldn't, they wouldn't take me. So the team I was with quilt racing, big motorsports, they ended up loading me up in their truck and brought me over to Sherbrooke, got me in there. Doctor grabs the leg and my leg like tips over, like bends the wrong way. I'm like, Oh, this is not good. So I did some x-rays and basically the guy came out and said, Oh, you need to go back to the U S not good. We're like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so they drive the toter over to the hospital, load me into that, and then haul me all the way back to Minneapolis. So I get there, and then uh, the next day, well, a couple days, obviously, it took to get there. I get there, and they do some uh, stuff, and my leg's so swollen, so I had to wait like a week, week and a half for all the swelling and everything to go down to finally have surgery. Oh, my God. That's a, that's a, that's a hell of an experience for sure. I mean, even... <laughs> For people who don't, for people who've never who never been to Valcor, I'm sure it was cold as shit. I'm sure it was like super windy and super snowy, and then you get hurt. Like it's just, it's a, it's a gnarly experience for sure. I bet. Oh yeah, and it it was it sucked too because I had really big expectations. I always did good in Valcor. You know, I think the year before I I, I might have won both semi pro classes. I I think I might have. So I was I always did really well there. So I was expecting a lot and. Obviously, I was on the right track, and then that happened. 
and uh, I'm assuming you're still on a skidoo at this point in time. Like, you know, yeah. and yep. performing well in, in Valcor is a, is a big oh, yeah. deal if you're a guy on a skidoo. Yeah. You know, that's, we were a skidoo dealer for, my dad was a skidoo dealer for 15, 16 years. So all I ever raced was a skidoo when it came to snow. Gotcha. You know, one thing you had mentioned was this was the team you were on. So I'm kind of curious. We haven't touched on it a ton, but kind of throughout both semi-pro and pro, were you running your own program or were you kind of getting affiliated with factory teams or getting factory equipment? Like what was your, what was your program like? I was running my own program. So all my stuff came right from, you know, Velcor to me. And then I ran out of the quilt racing, big motorsport semi. So they would take care of, uh, obviously transportation, hotels, entry fees, all that. Mm -hmm. So kind of coming out of that, uh, out of that injury period from, from Valcor, I'm assuming you kind of went through the, through the rehab and, and you ended up coming back and getting back on a sled, right? Yeah, I did. But one of the problems jet ski racing was, you know, I was doing really well at that time. So I ended up, you know, coming back too soon. So I think our first race was, what was it? April, uh, May. Mm -hmm. The first jet ski race was in May. So like my guys had to carry me down and set me on the watercraft. I went and raced, obviously won the race and everything, but I came back way too soon. So, it, you know, it, it didn't allow my knee to heal the right way. So I developed mm -hmm. a ton of scar tissue. So I went out to Nashville in August and won the APBA national championship. But when I came home, I had to have, a, have had to have it scoped. Well, then I ended up having to go right into the zero finals, which I won two world championships that year, but did that much more damage to the knee. So I oh, God. never did come back fully healed. You know, the next year I was putting way too much pressure on my other knee and then I ended up tearing the ACL out of that because I was favoring my bad knee. So, so to all you kids out there, yeah. <laughs> don't come back too soon. You know, make sure you heal. Oh man, that's, that's a message that no matter how many times you say it, it's never going to hit. Like never exactly. going to hit no matter what. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Until they get older and understand it. <laughs> Oh yeah, they'll be they'll be feeling it every single day, and they'll be like, oh, yeah. back in my day, I never should have gone on. You know, that's that's how it's gonna go. They won't know until later. Oh, yeah. So you kind of mentioned when you're coming back, it was not it was not peak Jamie Cheney, it was not raw speed Jamie Cheney that we had known. But were you still kind of still like excited and still trying to pursue the the racing side in snowcross or were you already oh, kind of sure. eyeing up your your next move no i definitely was obviously my brain okay. was telling me I, I could do it but the body was just not quite there gotcha. yeah there were there was times i mean i'd have a heat race all of a sudden bam i was just like lights out again doing really well and then go back and get on the sled and then I couldn't even move my knee because there was so much tissue, you know, so much stuff stuck between the patella cup and my knee. It was, yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in this time, before we see you kind of show up on the, on the avalanche team, were you, did the opportunity with avalanche kind of, kind of come out of nowhere or were you kind of scoping that out from a distance or like kind of how did, how did that opportunity to go over there uh, start for you? Yeah, I came out of nowhere. <clears throat> I was at the 2004 World Finals. Had just won another big race out there, and my sponsor at the time was Fly. I was pretty tight with them, and they had uh, Mike and Bonnie had actually contacted them. That's the owner of Avalanche Racing, and had some pretty healthy sponsors, but needed a pro rider. So Wade, at the time, that was running us you know, the snow side of it contacted me and he was just out in Havasu with me and it kind of told me about it. And I thought about it for a little bit and I'm like, man, my body just can't, I know my knee ain't going to be able to do it, but I'm like, I got to do this. You know, obviously that's all I knew what to do, you know? So I ended up going with it and turned into avalanche racing. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And that's, you know, there's not a ton of information on, on Avalanche, at least that you can find publicly, you know, without, without the stories. You, you see the pictures appear every now and again, and, you know, 
fully funded sponsored team, ton of non-endemic sponsors on the sleds. And it's, it's a cool looking program from the outside. But like I said, we just never, we don't hear about it very much. There's not a lot of stories out in the public about that team. Right. You know, the first year of it, uh, we just had a few skidoos, had three riders. It was myself, Johnny Annexberger and uh, David Glefke, which were the owner's son. Then David got hurt and we picked up a, a kid out of Northern Illinois, uh, Mike Bell, which was actually a pretty fast sport rider. Mm-hmm. And we, we ran skidoos that year and then caught the, you know, players kind of caught on to what Mike had going on and uh, ended up being one of the factory players teams for four years. Did you also, as a rider, make that transition on a Polaris or by then did you kind of oh. hang up the boots? Yeah, I was done that year. I was done, um, mm-hmm. you know, the year we had the skidoos. And then once we uh, signed with Polaris, we got Mike Schultz. Mm-hmm. We had Mike Schultz, Mike Bell and David Glefke. And at that time I just turned into the mechanic slash crew chief. How familiar with you or how familiar were you with uh with polaris at this time because like you said you've been on skidoo pretty much since day one yeah and being a skidoo dealer for 15 years it was kind of crazy you know obviously they were <laughs> you're kind of enemies you know yep yep. you're trying to sell all the, the yellow stuff they're trying to sell the red stuff then you got cats selling the green stuff so it was different but it was it was good. I, I think uh, it was kind of an easy switch because Tom Rager Senior was a big part of my program when I was a pro light rider, mm-hmm. and he had moved over there with Bill Rader. So I had mm-hmm. really really familiar faces and guys I could talk to and trusted. So we only saw we only saw Avalanche. I mean, as it was for a couple years. The, the team as it existed wasn't around for a super long time. And again, like I said, there's not a ton of information. So what ultimately led to them kind of closing the doors, at least on their operation as a family? So when Blair shut, or uh, when Avalanche shut down, it was the 2008, 2009 season, sponsorships started to kind of drop off. And Polaris, Parts Unlimited, Rockstar, Yellow Book, Giordano's Pizza. We had some pretty and Liberty Coach. We had some mm-hmm. pretty pretty healthy sponsors that were all pulling back quite a bit. So that's when we had, a, you know, Mike and Bonnie. We all sat back and looked at what it takes to do this. We're only going to do it at a high level. So if we can't do it at that level, why do it at all? So we ended up pulling the plug on it. But you know, it was super successful that one year. I think we won every championship but two. You know, we mm-hmm. didn't win the pro championship. We did not win the uh, sport, but we won both pro light championships with Andrew Johnstead, pro women with Kylie Abramson and James Johnstead won the two junior championships. So there's a lot of, a lot of success there. Yeah. And that's, that's the part that's just so intriguing is like, you know, a lot of the success that we see these days in snowcross, it's a lot of these like, kind of dynasty teams like there's a there's a handful of teams that you know are going to be fast no matter what from time to time we see new ones come in and make a splash but usually it's like the long-lived team so when there's a a team that comes in like avalanche for only like one or two years just wins everything and then disappears into the sunset it's just for the for the fans of the history of snowcross it's just oh it's, it's always so interesting oh for sure and you know behind the scenes avalanche was i you know, Mike and Bonnie gave me the full reins to to build it the way it needed to be built. And it was pretty awesome. We did everything in-house. Our, and that was in the mod days, too. So our engine development mm-hmm. was all done to my dad. You know, we, we stuck with that long stroke motor where everybody was kind of getting away from it and going back to that short stroke motor. You know, we did a lot of cool things. We actually won the championship with that thing with, with Andrew. So it was cool. A lot of cool things came out of Avalanche. We were even getting into the freestyle stuff, too, when freestyle was definitely... Nobody wanted to do much with it, but Bruce Schumacher from Parts Unlimited, you know, contacted mm-hmm. us. We actually pulled on a freestyle kid from Alaska, and we're going to try to, you know, go that route too, but just didn't quite work out. Interesting, interesting. So when they close up shop, do you then 
immediately go to boss or was there kind of like an interim period where you were working with some other riders or something like that yeah so when avalanche uh, shut the doors <clears throat> star performance came back for another year which was mike fubicorn at own that and that was an articat team for a couple years back in the ola racing era mm -hmm. so about two or three years before avalanche and his kid rode for us the last year so he ended up having a trailer and having all the stuff for the shop so we we ended up forming that for one year and ran that out of beltrami minnesota with uh mm -hmm. kyle fibacorn derek ellis and james johnston gotcha okay pretty successful there too we won a lot of semi pro races with ellis pretty cool yeah i've uh I've, I've talked to Derek Ellis a couple times. In case he listens, Derek Ellis is on my list. I already told him he's going to come on for an episode. So he's, he's going to have some right. cool stories. Yeah, <laughs> he'll have some cool stories for sure. Oh, yeah. So speaking of Derek Ellis, natural transition, because he was also a boss guy with you. After that yep. uh, program, you move over to, to boss racing. And I'm, I'm assuming, were you, still, were you still living in Fargo at this time? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So did that have anything to do? I mean, I'm sure you got a call from Gary, but did that have anything to do with it too? Like being able to, to work for a team closer to home a little bit? Well, you know, Gary called me and I, I knew him. I didn't know him very well, but he called me and we talked it over a little bit and he told me what his plans were for the future. And, you know, the shop could be run out of Fargo and stuff. So I, I thought it was something, something that, actually be able to put together pretty well so we went with it and ran it out of here for four years yeah and you know for a lot of us younger people like myself this is this is where i know jamie cheney is jamie cheney is is boss racing he had a lot of success a lot of other teams but this is where i think of this is where i think of jamie cheney is crew chief for boss racing i mean a lot of a lot of talent came through the team when you're with your years there. I mean, you had multiple stints at Boss, but a lot of a lot of championships, a lot of talent, and yeah, this is this has got to be where some of your cooler memories in racing have been for sure. For sure, I think uh, you know the Avalanche thing was pretty awesome. Uh, once Boss started, I think it uh, it definitely really uh, hit home. You know, it was. It was a really cool deal. If there's ever, uh, if there, ever, if there's ever any doubt about marketing and snowmobiling, just here's a story for you, Jamie. I uh, grew up in northern Vermont, small town. Uh, the closest Walmart to my town was an hour away, so that's that's small town we're talking. When I first made it to Minnesota and I first saw a Jimmy John's logo, I was freaking out. <laughs> I was like, dude, Boss Racing, Jimmy John's. And all my friends like, dude, it's just a sandwich company. It's like, oh no, oh no, this is this is Boss Racing. That's what this is. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, that deal was awesome. I remember sitting at Eagle River, Wisconsin. We had Brett Turcott at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, Jody had Ross Martin, and Jimmy John, Jimmy's there. It's Jimmy's walking around, and oh really? Said, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna sponsor a snowcross team. He came in our trailer, and we're like, oh man, this would be pretty cool. We got to win this race. So Turcotte leads the race, the whole race. Last lap, mm -hmm. last corner, Ross puts on one of them spectacular Ross Martin maneuvers, mm -hmm. passes Turcotte, wins the race. We're like, huh, great. <laughs> Jack Lynch, <laughs> Jimmy John, we know they're friends. We're like, oh, we're not going to get yep. a sponsorship. No kidding. Mm -hmm. It goes till, I don't know, was it maybe may june we get a phone call from james north which is his main guy said hey jimmy's gonna sponsor you guys and that's how it all shook out it's pretty crazy oh, man. what a great sponsor though jimmy was so passionate such a good guy loved it. it yeah it's it's always interesting like i mean we you know when we mentioned avalanche you know you want to talk about non-endemic industry sponsors jimmy john's you know, again, great example. And and for a long time, I mean, those guys were Snowcross. They sponsored Ryder D and Supercross. Uh, sponsored Kevin Harvick, NASCAR. Like very, very creative mindset when it comes to marketing. It's not just Facebook ads or something like those. Those guys were were diehard motorsports people. 
Absolutely. You know, when Jimmy, I remember him telling us, I think it was our second to last year. That was at the, maybe our second championship, Jimmy John sold, you know, he mm -hmm. sold it out. Yep. So he still had his percentage of his stores. So he physically sponsored us through his operation. It didn't come really? from, you know, originally we were corporate. Yeah. But the last two years we were not, it was right from Jimmy himself. We, we liked it and figured he did such a good job that he, he stuck with us, you know. What a guy. Like, just, there's just, those are the, those are the guys we, we need in the sport. Like those are the guys that keep the sport alive in a lot of ways, guys like that. Yep, absolutely. So I'm curious then, Jamie, after, you know, a number of years at Boss, a lot of fast guys, you end up uh, heading over to, to Carlson Motorsports for a couple of years. I'm just kind of curious what uh, what prompted that move for you? Uh, just some differences. That's mm -hmm. BRP and, and myself. It was all good, but it was just mm -hmm. stuff went in a different direction. So I ended up going over to Carlson. Yeah, and running that for three years. And that was, that was pretty awesome, too. Yeah, there was a, there was a number of really good, I mean, between Andrew Carlson and, and Ryan Springer, maybe some of the most like naturally talented guys we've seen in a long time, like guys that just could really just win a race out of nowhere at any time, you know? So hundred oh, percent, yeah. you know, Andrew was, he was definitely kind of the way I was in pro. He was battling his knees. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's what ended up finally, you know, stopping him from racing, but he had tons of talent. Mm -hmm. He could ride that sled just as good as anybody else. And then there's the Springer guy. <laughs> oh, Ryan. Yeah, he's, dude, he was crazy. I mean, he was so mm -hmm. good. He didn't even know how good he was. I can't believe yeah. that first year. You know, I think he won the sport championship the year I wasn't there. So Ellis was there because he was with yeah. us at Boss. Ellis was, and then he went over to. Yeah. His, first, his, first year in, his first year in sport for Carlson's. Yeah, <laughs> yep. He ended up winning that championship. Then the next year he won this, the Pro Light Championship. Yep. Shit, I think we went on and won like eight or nine races with Springer. Yeah, just the Springer is another guy that I really want to have on because he's he's got a really unique perspective. Like he's he's super talented and he worked extremely hard when he was around. But he wasn't around for very long. He just came in, made a splash, showed everybody how talented he was, and then circumstance with teams and stuff like this, and then he just kind of disappears back into his normal life. You know, like yeah. if you if if you blinked and didn't see it, you'd have no idea who Ryan Springer was or how fast he was on the sled. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Yeah, another one of the things, kind of in those couple years where you were there, when those guys bumped up to pro. I mean, granted, pro is an animal in itself. Like, you got to be next level to race in the pro class, too. But we never really saw that level of of dominance between Carlson or Springer kind of in the pro class. It was always kind of on the verge of getting to that podium level. You guys were fighting some things with the motor for a couple of years. And just, yeah, I'm sure it was kind of tough coming from a lot of success at Boss and then coming into Carlson and still having success. But you know, you have a background of winning a lot of championships. It probably kind of irked you to not be able to have that level of success in the pro class with those guys. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, the riders, I mean, it wasn't, you know, they were in the best shape they could possibly be in. Mm -hmm. I think when it came to the sleds, you know, we, that first year on the mods, we, we went with Bike Man. We built mm -hmm. a really, really nice pipe. We had some good power. We just, you know, we were stuck on the ignition. I just couldn't find that right curve to make it work properly. But then you got the next year, we ended up going back with Polaris and, and going on to the, the Henches program, getting all the right stuff and our results didn't change. You know, it was, it was tough. I think the riders would just, once you get to that pro level, mm -hmm. the minute you think you can't do it, you're done. Yeah. It's all mental. And I think that's, yeah, that's what, that's what happens to these guys. You know, the minute they think they can't do it, game over. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's what happened. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered too, cause I mean, we, we touched on Springer a little bit and you, you'd be reunited with, uh, with Ryan a couple years later when you would come up and race for boss and 
even he was like never never truly the Ryan Springer we saw and I just kind of I've always kind of wondered if if those couple tough years in pro kind of kind of messed with his his confidence a little bit you know I not not assuming or anything though just kind of always my my thought process yeah I see it a lot though with all the guys I mean I've always smoked sport for 25 26 riders over the mm-hmm. teams it, it's there's only certain ones that can adapt to that pro class yep yeah, it's it's true, and you know we, we see it we see it a ton in Supercross where guys oh, get pressured to, to to move up from the 250 class to the 450 class, and it's like, well, I mean, I, do I want to be do I want to be a top 250 guy for as long as they'll let me, or do I want to be a, a mid pack 450 guy? Like you, you kind of for some guys that that that's a legitimate that's a legitimate argument because they may never you know hit that next threshold in the pro class. You know, you never really yeah. know until you jump in and then it's too late. Yeah. And that's right. You know, your mindset, you're always telling yourself you're the best. You've got to be the best. You've got to be up front. Well, when you get to the pro class, man, they're all really good. And all of a sudden you go from pro light winning, being on the box all the time. Then you go to pro and you're a you know, fourth, uh, eighth place rider, but you're still really good. But your mind is telling you your mind's defeating you because you, you think you should be at the top but you're not you know mm-hmm. yeah and and some guys never truly recover from it like we said no you know, it's it's oh. you, you need to ride that confidence as long as you can as soon as it's not there it's, it's tough to recover from yeah so carlson motorsports ultimately kind of closes up shop after a couple of those seasons there so i'm curious then jamie for you like had you moved out here yet, or were you were you commuting back and forth from from Fargo to to Elk River? Uh, so I was I was commuting. Yeah, I was I was really? staying out at Carlson shop, and I'd try to come home anytime I could. You know, on the weekends if we weren't racing <clears throat> or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was I was down there most of the time. Gotcha. Okay. I was just kind of curious then, because when they when they close up, if you were actually moving back to Fargo, or if you were like, nah, I never really left Fargo. I was just kind of here in the winter. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and then when Carlson closed up, Chris was good about it. He, you know, Andrew, he knew his knees were hurt, and so he was making that transition over to dirt. Mm-hmm. And, and Chris, it was talked about way before the end of the season. So everybody kind of could get get a grip on what to what to do next. So, gotcha. So after a couple of years there, like I mentioned earlier, you had multiple stints with Boss. This is one of them. This is the second one where you end up going back to Boss for a couple of years. Were they still were they still in Fargo at this time then? Because no. they moved, didn't they? They went to Princeton. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I ran Boss for the first four years out of Fargo. That next year, when I went to Carlson, they went over to Hill City. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So they were out of Hill City for one year, and then they were out of Princeton um, that second year. And then Carlson ended up, you know, shutting down the snow division. So then that's where I went back to Boss and ran it out of Princeton. Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, I'm sure you were super excited and, you know, you, you knew a lot of the guys at Boss, but did did the shut down of Carlson kind of forced your hand to go back there or were you kind of looking to make a change anyway? Like was the time? Uh, you know, honestly, I want to go back to BRP. Yeah. Back with Skidoo. So that, you know, once Chris had, you know, talked to us about, Hey, we're going to, we're going to end this, you know, program on the snow side, you know, it was, you know, right then and there, Gary needed a little different change too. So he called me right away and, we discussed some things, talked to Sebastian and up at BRP and got it all put back together. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it was definitely cool to kind of read the the press release of of you coming back. It's like, oh, this is gonna be this is gonna be good, you know. And then then Elias is coming over. Like, this is gonna be this is gonna be some good stuff. There's gonna be some some rowdiness in that trailer, but there's gonna be a lot of wins that come out of that trailer. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, you know, Elias, uh, when we actually signed him, you know, he was obviously, you know, moving from Warner's over to Boss, and 
you know, he had a busted femur, broken wrist. So he, he showed up and you know, it was around, you know, just before, maybe a couple weeks before the first race up in Duluth and man, his leg, so he had no meat left on it. Mm. Just rehabbing that, that femur. So he tried to ride a little bit that week and I was like, oh man. <laughs> this ain't this ain't gonna be good which which is all right so we, we sent him back home got him mm -hmm. you know he was able to rehab really well he came back for the last two races and showed extreme speed you know i mm -hmm. think there was a couple little spurts he was with tucker for just a little bit so i was like oh yeah this this kid's got something he's got some pretty good talent so you know and then the next year he came back to swing it yeah it's it's, it was definitely really cool to watch. So I think for a lot of us, you know, watching him in pro light and even his first year in pro, I mean, you just kind of wondered like, yeah, he's fast as hell, but how is that going to actually translate in the pro class? Because like, he, for a lot of years, he, he really was either taking the checkered flag or he was on the ground. So it was going to be yeah. very interesting to see how he, how he did in the pro class. Yeah. You know, I think with, with Elias, it was, you know, the first time I met him, I, I just, I don't know, for some reason I understood him. I knew what he wanted. I could just tell I knew the way he needed that snowmobile to be. And it was, it was awesome. You know, it was, it was great. We had Jesse there, a French uh, mechanic that was just phenomenal. I mean, Elias was blowing that sled apart every, every heat race. <laughs> I mean, you'd be surprised if you could come in the, the boss trailer at the time. We got, that thing would be tore right down and put right back together with it, everything brand new. I remember Skidoo always kind of saying, man, you're using so many parts. I said, hey, this kid's so fast and we're winning. What do you, what do you, what else do you want? You know, we, we got to make sure the thing ain't breaking on him. I don't think we ever had a break except for that very last championship and that dominator I had a brand new belt on there that was broken and the thing broke and I never really? broke belts. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> uh, and you're, I mean, you're like a clutching guy, Jamie, like that must've just been oh, brutal. Oh yeah. <laughs> man. I, it's yeah. That, that sucked. Yeah. It just oh. broke right in half. Oh man. That's oh, what brutal. it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny. I, even talking to some people at Heydays this year, just because like I'm I'm pretty removed from you know snowcross in terms of like knowing people within teams and stuff like that. So I was just it's kind of hearsay what I hear, and they're like, yeah, from some of the people that from Fiend, it's like yeah, he's got like four or five sleds in rotation like throughout the year. Like you just you have to for a guy like that. Like he's just he's fast as hell, but he's pretty hard on equipment. But he's winning, so. What do you oh, for sure. Yeah. You do whatever it takes, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So again, like we said earlier, a ton of success with Elias and with boss for a couple of years. And then, you know, Jordan comes into the fray and again, just another raw talent guy that you knew was going to become big. And then, you know, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, I'm sure you knew it was happening, but from the, from the fan side, boss kind of closes up shop as well. Um, you know, after many, many years of pro snowcross operation. So for you, when they close up shop, where, what's your next move? Like, were you already talking to, to Chad or where were you, where are you kind of at at that point in time? Well, at that point in time, you know, we obviously were coming up our third championship. We had LaBelle breaking his back and coming back and winning two races. Uh, you know, obviously Occupy wasn't with us the last year, but the previous two years had a lot of success with him. I, I just, you know, I, I was contacted by this new outfit and, you know, it was out of Fargo. I knew I could come back home with my, uh, you know, be closer to my wife and my, my eight-year-old that is starting to love racing now. So mm -hmm. I thought maybe it was, a, it was a good switch. It was, it was a difficult one though. It's probably the hardest decision in my life I've ever had to make. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely tough, but you know, I did it and. Yeah, I'm sticking with it, and that's that's what I did, you know. I'm assuming then, uh, you know, once you ultimately make your way back over and and start working for All Finish, did you? From what I was able to find, you probably worked with uh, with Kylo at at Avalanche, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. Kylo was uh, Mike Schultz's mechanic. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So he was there for a couple of years. We're family, so yeah. My my wife and Kylo are cousins so 
Oh, really? Kylo's, okay. Yeah, Kylo's have been around forever. We all race together. They didn't do a lot of snowcross. They did a lot of cross country and stuff, but now we've been, we've been family for, or friends for a long time. Gotcha. Awesome. Awesome. So when you kind of get that call that, Hey, you know, all finished concrete is going to build a snowcross program. Like what's your, what's your initial thought? So you're like, Oh yeah, I'm in. Or are you kind of like, eh, we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll paint it. Well, I, I just didn't know the direction at Skidoo where, where we were going, mm -hmm. you know, so I, you know, Elias was obviously going on his third championship. Thien was, you know, they were driving our truck that year. And I know there was a, there was a bit of talk about us possibly, you know, going over to their shop, mm -hmm. kind of combining. It was just kind of, I didn't quite know. Didn't quite know mm -hmm. what was going to happen. You know, Jimmy John, that was basically his last year of, of, of sponsoring it. Yep. So there was, a, there was a lot of unknowns. Mm -hmm. And then this, this came up and, and like I said, it got me closer back to my family. So mm -hmm. that was the reason I did it. Gotcha. Yeah. And this is, this is kind of our, our most recent uh, version of Jamie Chaney is, is all finished racing, which you know, if, if the Onstads ever come back to the sport on, on the snow side, that'd be super cool. But if they don't, God, they left a sick legacy. Like, just all in for two years. Like, the spare no expense, race shops, semis. Like, there'll never be an argument that they didn't do it right for, that, for those two years. Yeah, that, that's for sure. But I think what you can see is obviously money doesn't buy everything, but you know, we, 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 we definitely worked our tail off. We were in a, at such a disadvantage with, you know, Articats trying so hard, mm -hmm. you know, for what they got, but our buggy was so far behind the other two. I seen it right away mm -hmm. when I walked in and I started working on the single and oh boy, yeah. but I, you know, I kept, kept my head high and I just, I, I figured out try to figure it out. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I didn't do the best job, but geez, you know, I don't know. It, it, it was very, very tough. I and mean, we had two riders that were pretty good, you know, Jake here, Dan Benham, mm -hmm. you know, Dan on a, any given day is, is amazing out there when it's time practice. It's like, Oh my God, look at how fast he's going. Look at his times, mm -hmm. you know, and Jake's just a bulldog. He just, he gets on it and just gives her, mm -hmm. you know, and you got Anson in, in pro light, but, it was just, it, it was a battle, you know, like mm -hmm. I said, that bugged me and it was tough. It was very tough. Yeah. It, it was tough to watch at times on the, on the consumer side or on the fan side too. Like I just remember like there was, there was one year at, uh, at Canterbury and, and Benham's running like third for the whole main and like two laps to go. He has a, a slight issue and it's just like these, these guys because even like again we, we know the work that's going in inside the truck we know the disadvantage already but it was always like god they're they're right there they're right there but at the same time they need so many things to kind of fall into place for a skidoo not to pass them you know what i mean yeah, exactly yeah yeah and that you know it just seems like we could never we could never get a break <laughs> everything was always against us it was crazy yeah, it was just like in New York too. The same same thing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Jake or Dan was second, couple laps to go, and sled starts icing up and goes down. And man, we people probably don't realize, but we did so much testing on that, and we we tried to simulate. And, and like I'll say, in racing, you can never simulate situations because we tried so much by dumping, we, we blocked off the front air intake and filled the thing full of snow and it still ran like a jam. <laughs> mm -hmm. But man, them races, they, they got us. You know, the front ends froze up and took us out. Yeah, it's 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 a shame to see those, those guys step away just because I think, you know, I'm sure that the keyboard warriors have a good time complaining about Articat, but all us people who actually work in the industry, like we, we need cat involved whether they're finishing first or finishing last we we need cat involved in the sport for them to for us all to succeed oh for sure 
And, you know, a lot of people may not. Cat still did a lot behind the scenes for mm -hmm. the racing. You know, they're, they're, they were working just as hard to. You know, it's just, it's just unfortunate that, you know, the buggy's just too far behind. Yeah. You no, know, it need, needs a big makeover and until that happens, it, it's going to be pretty tough. Yeah. And I, I did an episode a couple, maybe a month ago with, uh, with Greg Marrier who ran Yamaha's pro efforts yeah. for a long time. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, one of the comments I made in there was because he was talking about, you know, the battles at the OEMs of getting rid of the mod programs and things like that. One of the points, one of the points I made in there was like, you, you think, you think Mike Coletti is any less passionate about racing now than he was like 15 years ago. Like everybody's still doing all that they possibly can to put good product out on the track. Like it's just, Absolutely. It's a, you know, nobody, nobody lost the motivation. It's just times are different, budgets are different, you know. It's just it, times are tough sometimes. Yeah, absolutely correct on that. So, you know, kind of moving on because, like I said, that's the last time we saw you in Snowcross, Jamie. But I do want to spend some time, at least a little while, talking about this jet ski stuff because it's a huge part of your life. Yet, for most Snowcross guys, this is not a this is not something most guys do. We, you know, we, we see it very rarely. So I do, I want to know where this jet ski passion of yours kind of started to. Well, the jet ski passion started, we were obviously selling them. Mm -hmm. And I was obviously at the time loving motocross, but I, we weren't selling dirt bikes in the showroom. So I had to start racing what we were selling. So <laughs> had to, right? <laughs> just, just had to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my dad took me to a couple of these jet ski races and holy smokes, I was actually doing really well, like winning these things. And you're like, what the heck? Maybe we should pursue this and start looking and figuring out what, uh, where these are all raced at, where the big races are. Yeah. then started understanding that there's a, this thing called the world championship on Wink Avenue city, Arizona. There's a bunch of different regions all over the U S and you got to qualify in and take the top six out of each and Jet ski racing was super competitive. Like there's so many people doing it. It's so many wealthy people. I think oh, when I you add boats and water, it's just, dude, it's crazy. So like, I'm just this kid from North Dakota and they're like, what the hell, where's North Dakota? Cause like we're racing <laughs> in Florida, California, yep. Georgia, what the heck? Well, they didn't know I was coming off of Snowville racing all winter mm -hmm. and jump right on that jet ski. and have no issues you know so, so yeah. yeah it's it, it is kind of funny like it's there's there's a lot of carrot there's a lot of crossover there like i mean you know i've seen bobby lepage on a jet ski he's pretty fast uh, i don't know if you know yeah i'm good i'm good friends with uh with uh, dave olson he used to race jet skis for polaris many years ago and like a lot of these guys that are pretty good on sleds are also pretty damn good on jet skis yeah yeah for sure you know back in the day uh what was it? was it mrp had a jet jet ski tour really man no yeah and that was one of my it was like my second or third race my dad took me to it it was todd wolf was racing there was a, a lot of them uh ice oval guys i didn't know very many of them mm -hmm. uh so yeah yeah it was pretty cool so kind of today you mentioned how competitive it is but are there and you also mentioned very very wealthy uh clientele at a jet ski race but are there factory teams too like is is cdu running a program is yamaha running a program or is it really just all privately funded people it's pretty pri privately funded uh most of the big racing now is over in europe so Thailand, oh really okay yeah asia is really big for the watercraft stuff back in the 90s was huge. I mean, the Bud Jet Sport Tour. So you had Factory Sea-Doo, Polaris, Kawasaki, Yamaha, Tiger Shark tried to dabble into it. it they, <laughs> yep. you know, they didn't even get it past their little lake. Their machines were not so good for that. But cattle try um, anything once. They'll try anything <laughs> once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, it was it was very healthy back in the day. About early two thousands is when it kind of you know. And a lot of people don't understand this, but when Bud Jet Sports pulled out and ESPN, it just, it went away. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the sponsorship, all of a sudden it's not on national TV. You know, it just, uh, it started to go away. Sidhu still kept a pretty good push in it. Yamaha has still been pretty healthy. I mean, Dean's team, a guy I used to race for back in the day as he builds almost all the Yamaha stuff. Um, shit, even some of them fast, like Chris McCluggage, Dustin Farthing, um, Chris Fischetti, they all tried snowcross. Really? Yeah, they all come over and tried certain certain uh, races. You know, one was at Deadwood. I think Fischetti come over to the last like two or three rounds back in early 2000s. And, and a lot of people, you know Darren Hedlund? Nope. He's he up in Polaris. He oh, okay. was heavily, heavily into the jet ski stuff. He built all Chris, McClug Chris McCluggage's stuff. So Hedlund was heavily into jet ski racing too. So they all just saw this this fast guy from Fargo yeah. and they're like, oh, I got to try and race a sled too if that guy's doing it. Yeah, yeah, because at the time, you know, X Games was doing so much for Snowcraft blowing it up. So mm -hmm. these guys were kind of jumping on the, the wagon, you know. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, in your mind, I mean, it's, you know, weight and, and shape and stuff like that are very similar. But, you know, what are kind of the bigger similarities between racing a jet ski versus a snowmobile? You know, standing up, jet ski, you're standing up all the time. They're like a runabout. Yep. You know, they're considered sit downs, but you're standing up 95% of the time. I don't know. There's just a lot of similarity with the sled and uh, the jet ski when it comes to that. Interesting. I don't know. I kind of, I, I kind of thought more road racing and motorcycle was very, very similar to jet ski stuff because you know, with the buoys, you're cutting around the buoys. It's like laying a road race bike down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anytime it, it, it'll, it'll randomly get recommended, whether it's YouTube or, um, I remember I caught it on TV one time cause, uh, Daniel Blair, who does like race day live for Supercross, he was doing some jet ski announcing. I was like, Oh, okay. I'll, I'll check that out. But I like, that stuff just looks so gnarly to me. Like I just, it, I'm sure for some people it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just racing a jet ski, but it just looks so gnarly. It looks <laughs> yeah. insane. You know, I'll say some of the best cross training is for sure on the stand up. Oh yeah. Oh my God. You know, some of that chop, a lot of people don't understand what chop is, but it's like a washing machine too. You've never, that, that it'll beat the crap out of you. It's, yeah. it's some awesome stuff. So this last one I'll ask you on the jet ski stuff and it's completely off script, but I think Yamaha still makes a stand up. Kawasaki yep. might have might have come back with one for like a year. Yeah. I don't know if they still sell it. Okay. Um, yeah, they still got the four stroke. Do we see a future where, you know, the stand up market comes back to what it used to be? No, I don't think you'll ever see that. Mm -hmm. No. The, one of the problems with jet ski racing is it the stuff got so heavily modified. So okay. the manufacturers started to shine away from it because you're talking carbon fiber halls, reshaping the halls, turbocharging, and that now all these stand-ups that are super fast are all four strokes. Yep. So uh, Dustin Manzuras down in uh, Arizona builds a wicked fast. I can't think of the name of his hull, but the things are so wicked. Mm -hmm. So for the manufacturer to come back in, uh, they're going to come back in and just sell a few here and there, but. Yeah. And if you're, if you're, if you're like, if you're BRP, yeah. you're like, well, I could bring this in, spend all this R and D money for this racing series, or I could sell, you know, piles and piles of, of sea deuce. Like I could, totally. <laughs> I could sell piles yeah. of sparks. Like how, <laughs> what, what's, what's my business case here? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So I want to transition here, Jamie, just a couple more for you. They're more uh, mechanic slash crew chief specific questions. And you can, you can take it either snow or jet ski. I'll leave it completely open to you, but favorite task. And I say favorite in quotations, cause there's really never a favorite mechanicing task, but favorite and least favorite. Favorite, I'd say rebuilding and building motors. Mm-hmm. The least pulling out skids. 
suspensions. <laughs> oh, I hate that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's, that's definitely one. Like, you look at how far snowmobiles have evolved over the years, and yet anytime you see a guy taking out a skid, you're like, have we not, have we not figured out a better way to do this yet after all these oh, years? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so kind of with all the teams that you've worked on over the years in, in snowcross, of all the riders you've had, whether it's teammates or even or guys you've worked with uh, as a crew chief, which rider was the easiest on equipment and which rider was the hardest? I feel like the hardest is going to be the easiest. <laughs> yeah, it is tough with all the riders. Like I said, 25 plus riders that I've, I've worked for, they're all so different. Mm -hmm. You know, they all have their differences here and there. And none of them were ever easy on everything. You know, they they always were wrecking something. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for sure, Elias, I mean, as hard as he was riding, that, that sled was getting pushed to the limits. Um, you know, the most talented rider, I would say, Matthew Marin. Dude, I could watch him every day. It was just flawless. It was unbelievable. Kid was just like a clockwork going through that. It was nuts. If if anybody is up to date on my other episodes, I've done some serious fanboying over Matthew Moran because I, you know, he spent a lot of years on uh, with Ingalls Performance racing in in Rock Maple and stuff like that, and then came back after boss and raced for Demexco for a year and stuff like that. And did an episode with Danny Poirier, who's like East coast royalty. And even Danny's like Matthew Marin's the most talented guy I've ever raced against. Like just, yeah. Just raw talents. Totally. It was unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Who's uh who's the pickiest rider you think you've had in terms of like setup? Benham. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd say Dan. Mm. Yeah, it was a close one, but I, I think Dan, you know, Dan, everything's got to be just perfect, which is great. I mean, you know, but yeah, I'd say Daniel. Oh, man. Last one for you then, Jamie. I already kept you pretty long, yeah. but last one for you. You've been around the sport really, really long time. What's the biggest change you've seen in the sport of snowcross? And it, you know, can be both. Obviously, sleds have changed a lot, so it can be kind of technology based, or also just general sport based. What's the biggest change? I think the biggest change is in the organization. You know, I think the tracks have changed. I think you know maybe they've gotten too high speed. I think a lot of that's got to change. Yeah, obviously sleds, they're, they're changing all the time, but I think it's the organization. You know, I think our organization has to keep stepping up, try to figure out how to keep people involved, mm -hmm. you know, how to, how to keep bettering it so this can stay around for a long period of time. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. We're uh, us diehard fans are always going to be around, but it's it's what are we doing to protect the sport twenty years from now? You know. Yep. So I'll kind of wrap it up for you then, Jamie. I mean, what are you what are you up to these days? What do you got planned for this winter? Because I'd imagine you haven't had a free winter in like twenty years. So. Yeah. No, it was weird. I haven't been to heydays. Oh man, I missed it this year. And the first year I was there was 1993. I was too young to drag <laughs> race, but I, I could run the trail stock classes. So I won all them. And then my dad had a, another guy running. So I, I've been to heyday since 1993. And this year was the first year I missed it. Oh man. Except minus obviously the COVID year, but yeah. Yeah. So I got a, I got a big moto race this weekend down in Iowa and then uh, Ponca's a big amateur race is next weekend. And like I said, I helped a couple mm -hmm. of kids that are pretty fast in the 50 and 65 class. So gearing up for that. And then after that, I guess I gotta, I gotta figure it out. My options are open. I want to keep doing this. So I, I guess I, uh, yeah, I've got to get something figured out. Well, we certainly hope to hope to see you back in some capacity. Cause you're a, 
again, really cool guy in the sport and been kind of a staple for a long time. So hopefully this is this isn't the last we've heard of of Jamie Cheney and Snowcross. I won't be. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thanks again, Jamie. I I really appreciate the time. Uh, again, I've been bugged by a couple people. I'm like, oh, don't worry. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to Jamie. He's on the list. Don't you worry. So definitely delivered so I'm, I'm super glad we uh were able to have you on the podcast yeah that was fun jamie cheney on the carbide podcast it's always fun to pick the brain of someone who's been part of so much success we always only see the finished product but the tidbits behind the scenes are always the coolest part of the story i'm hoping we see jamie back at the races again soon he knows too much and is too impactful not to find a spot again if he wants it. Thanks again to Jamie for the time and the patience of working through my technical issues. The content in here was awesome, even if it didn't sound the greatest. If you made it this far, I really appreciate it. I have some really sick interviews coming up in the next few weeks that you won't want to miss. So be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and as always, take care.